And we are back with the Energy Week podcast. Riding right alongside Ellen Wald. How are you doing, Dr. Wald? Not bad, not bad. It Better was, than oil. It's the weather. Well, maybe here, not. I don't, yeah, yeah. The weather here is kind of like uh, oil prices up and down. It is. It was <laughs> hot and cool and hot and cool. It was 100 one day last week and like two weeks ago, it was like in the 40s. And so <sighs> and then we had then we had hail on Saturday night. So just small hail. But yeah, so we are entering the climate change either that or it's the wrath of god that well maybe both maybe both Both. that's true that's true yeah well speaking of wrath big oil has 150 billion in cash and investors want their fair share today or something what what um i mean okay i get it (laughs) investors want their cut nothing wrong with that that's why you invest in companies Mm-hmm. Is it a little premature though to start asking these companies for more money? I mean, we did about run them out of business, or is this a good time? You know, it's a good question. I think it's you know, I think it, it all of these companies. I mean, oil companies have always been big on you know making sure they give dividends. So it's not like they were not giving dividends. Um, I think you know, it's I, I think that. What a lot of people don't realize, uh, certainly the um, political class doesn't realize, is that oil is always, it's a cyclical business. So oil prices are high, they make a lot of money, mm-hmm. but that's got to last them through the downturns when oil is lower. So companies didn't have a lot of excess cash. I mean, you want to just pay it all out now. I get Exxon has a huge amount of cash right now, like the most I think of any company. I mean, I was saying, you know, I think either either they're going to buy a company or they're going to sit on it and see if there is a real downturn in prices and then buy something for cheap, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, I don't know, that's what I would do if I was Exxon sitting on a lot of cash. I would not necessarily do that right now. I'd wait and see, you know, I mean, it's, it's you're not really sure. Like either there's going to be an economic downturn and oil prices are going to go low. So then spend that cash, buy some good stock, like buy a company that has a lot of like good acreage or whatever for cheaper than you would now, or you just save it. And then if oil prices don't go that low, if they get higher, then you've got tons of cash and you'll make lots of cash and then you can give it out to your, you know, investors then. So I, I, you know, I get that like people are kind of pushing for them to either return value to shareholders or whatever it is the Biden administration does, but like they need the cash that they made when prices were high to see them through when it's low. Are you suggesting that government employees don't have to worry about paychecks because they get them every week, regardless of whether the oil prices are higher or low? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it it is a good point. That is to say that, you know, over the past, we're in 2023, so past four years, people forget going into the pandemic, prices were soft in January. Remember that we bombed and killed Suleimani and prices rolled oh, yeah. 55, 57, something like that. They weren't even that high. Yeah. Yeah. And so, because um, the Iranians had bombed the Saudis in like the end of 2019 at the refinery. Yeah, and- in September, right? Yes. And so even then prices didn't go crazy. So and then you have 2020, which you know was was brutal. 2021, uh, and so now 2022 is a good year, and we'll see where 2023 is. But 2023, we're sitting here at mid 70 dollar barrel prices, and so yeah, it's it's a little bit 
It's a little bit tough to, to, to your point. These are depleting assets. Uh, you have the up and down you have to deal with. Um, I'm not, I, don't, I hate to sound like the, the fender of big oil. I think they do plenty of things terribly, but, but also, yeah, I mean, relative to some, some of these tech companies that don't ever play pay dividends, it seems that they offer some value, right? Yeah. And, you know, another thing is like a lot of these companies, there's a lot of uncertainty, especially in terms of regulation. Say we get another Democrat in office that they, we, they could see changes to like how they're allowed to, you know, get, you know, I mean, they're so-called like tax breaks, but basically like what if they're not allowed to account their depreciating assets in the same way? You know, there could be changes that could require them to pay a lot more money, like that could cause their costs to go up a lot. Now, I don't think their costs are going to go up like astronomically to account for like all the cash that Exxon is sitting on. But, you know, it's not a uh, an unknown thing. Okay. And to get money in the bank, they will need prices to go high. Some traders are saying that we've hit the low for the year, which means they will go lower, right? That's how that goes. When we've predicted the bottom we usually find there's a lower a lower bottom to it. Someone on the internet, someone on the internet, it could be anyone, yeah. someone on Twitter wrote like, I don't know, it's like over the weekend, it was in a comment to like another another person. It was like, you and Ellen Wald have been the most like wrong in your oil predictions ever. And I was like, I don't really make oil predictions, but apparently they think I'm like really, really bad at this. Like, I mean- have I ever been like horribly wrong? I don't know. I don't really, you know, I don't think that I'm like that bad at this. Well, you don't make price predictions. So <laughs> I think, I think I've coached it. Have you like once or twice in the podcast, yeah. even then you you don't want to do it. Well, I'm like, yeah, yeah. It, there, there's an interesting concept to the predictions, which is if you measured everyone's predictions, you would find that probably most people were wrong. What, 70, 80% on predictions anywhere past a month or two out? You know, you're just kind of guessing. There's too many events. And so I think we got to have a confirmation bias for people we like. We think that they're right more than the ones that we don't like. They're right less. And Yeah. You know, so basically it's just saying, I don't like you. Yeah, well. Like your face is ugly or, okay. No, no one, I don't know anyone who doesn't like you. So I can't imagine <laughs> that being true. But yeah. There were like three people in the third grade, you know, you probably still don't <laughs> like me. But I do think there is something to that because I've seen people who have who have said something and you're like, yeah, I don't think so. And then six months later, they're like, oh, look at this was right. You're like, oh, well, dang. And, and then you see stuff that they're wrong about, but they don't ever bring it up. We all we all do that. So anyways, um, the trick, which ironic is we cover these articles all the time on the podcast and they are wrong all the time, all the time, all the time. I mean, Think about all the predictions we've talked about going into this year, $90 average, $100 average, $95 average. Well, to get there with a $70 for whatever it's been a few weeks or a month, you're going to have to have a sustained amount of period of time to counteract that. So you can't just go up to 92 for the rest of the year and get a $100 average. You know, you got to get to 110 or 112 or whatever. So, uh, and these are people who actually in, sell their advice to like their investors. Yeah. They should be right. Far more, far more often they are. So, but have we seen the bottom? Do you think we're at the bottom? That's the question here. You know, that is a really good question. I, I, like, I, I don't know. I, I honestly would say I don't know. I, I definitely think that, like, I just think I think we're in a place of a lot of volatility. And yeah, we got some like 
not so bad, you know, data, I guess, recently, like, but, you know, if China posts another real, some other really bad numbers, I think things will go down again. Or, you know, it, it's, a, it's like the recent slide in oil prices is starting to bottom out, according to analysts who predict that a more significant pickup in the coming quarters is in the cards. Now, of course, you have to ask, well, is that because they want it to be that way? Um, I mean, inventories are bigger here. Um, uh, Cities Global Head of Commodities Research, Ed Moore says, now it definitely feels like they're at the bottom. Feels. feels. Do you have a feeling? I mean, apparently there are multiple signs that this may be the bottom. Is but it feels. How's your feeling about this? Is OPEC going to do any more cuts? That would that would determine my, my feeling some. I think yeah, exactly. I think OPEC will do more cuts if people feel like it's not the bottom. <laughs> you know, like I think OPEC will do what what but you know, but like we don't have any signals on their on their June meeting, I guess, right? No, I mean, I, I think it's unlikely, but like, never say never, right? It's just, okay, so like, what, what gives you a sign that it, that things might be heading up? Is it summer driving season? I mean, Memorial Day is around the corner, but like inventories of gasoline are high. Are we expecting there to be like huge demand from the US this year? Is diesel demand picking up? Are we looking at China? Are we looking at the five-year average for inventories i'm just like i'm, I'm really curious i well, mean okay so oh, oh it could be because the fed says maybe they're not going to raise interest rates anymore mm. well i um okay so i noticed we wouldn't get gas in my wife's car yesterday it's like 299 this is regular unleaded and then i saw that gas buddy put out an article about gasoline prices going down some more so prices are continuing to go down which could spur on some um some economic activity uh, as you mentioned summer driving season is coming up vacations etc but but also we had that news from china last week which was that the manufacturing portion of their economy is still struggling it's not it's not where it needs to be their economy is driven by consumerism and so what does that mean for beyond the consumer is there going to be a contraction in the market for things that really you know we, we, we think about um you know summer driving season but it's those big industrial things that, that suck up a lot of fuel and use a lot of energy and stuff too and so if those people aren't going to be consuming you would seem to need a pretty substantial pent-up demand as we like to say um to counteract that and at some point, the pent-up demand argument's got to go away, right? Like, we're we're well past COVID at this point. I mean, I know, I know we officially ended it like a, a week ago or something, but yeah, but, but, we're, but all all that demand's got to be, has to run its course. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I'm not sure. I think that we're still, I mean, like, did we get better than expected economic data? Did we, you know, is it the expectation the Fed's not going to, you know, I, I really don't know. I, I'm really wondering about this. Um, okay, so here's I, I think maybe this is a case of like, we want it to be, this is not like, you know, I was just thinking about like how a lot of times people like to use data and numbers because it gives you this sense of objectivity, right? Mm -hmm. The numbers don't lie. But in this case, people are like, well, I feel like it's the bottom. 
there's okay, so signs. You, yeah, well, you, are, is that real art right. objective data or is it just like feeling data? So here's some diesel data from four days ago. Okay. So this okay. is, uh, or at least the articles from four days ago, the headlines or the subheadlines read diesel prices have fallen this year as higher interest rates, da, da, da. Transportation and logistics logistics firms claim a freight recession is already underway and diesel futures have slumped to a 15-month low this week. They go on to say um, that fears of a diesel shortage have, have receded in recent months despite a drawdown in U.S. distillate inventories, which have fallen in past weeks and are around 11% below the five-year average for this time. So... We're 11% below the five-year average and prices are still falling, correct? That's the inventory. And then lowering trucking activity and slower U.S. economic growth, which was at 1.1% the first quarter, is down 2.6% in Q4 2022. So it looks like if you're looking at the diesel numbers, they're not mm-hmm. they're not good. And so I don't yeah. I don't feel good after reading those numbers about old prices. I didn't I didn't feel yeah. I feel like what kind of feeling did the numbers give you? Tell us about the feeling. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could, could be wrong. Uh, I have no idea. I just, I just don't feel like those are positive numbers. So maybe. You imagine the weather guys like, I feel like there's a chance of rain today. Oh, man. As opposed yeah. to like, there's a 30% chance that it will rain. And we all know that like, that doesn't necessarily mean much, but still, like, right. I feel like it might rain. Right. Well, okay. Yeah, I feel like what we're going to find out, and even though, and, and here's the other thing is that we might hit summer driving season and demand might go up, um, but OPEC would need to hold, it would seem, right? Yeah. Because if OPEC cuts more, it, you know, if OPEC cuts in June, it's their next meeting, I think, right? So if they cut in June, we really didn't hit the bottom of the market. They just cut to counteract the bottom of the market from going lower. <laughs> good point. But what about Russia? Is Russia still a what? Like, do we think Russia is actually cutting production? Because I was kind of under the impression that they were cutting production, but they're keeping exports steady because they're putting less into refining. But then other people were like, well, we don't see signs of that. Is Russia cutting at all? Like Russia says it's going to cut. Russia is supposed to cut. What if Russia doesn't cut? That could cause the market to go lower. Yeah, I don't know what the Russians are going to do. They've got it because they're building all that storage stuff. And so to your point, are they actually going to store it? They're actually going to cut it. Um, and I, I don't know. We, we covered that article a few weeks ago and it wasn't really clear to me what what we, what the think way, um, what the takeaway should be on that. And I don't really have a, have a strong opinion on it at this point. Yeah. Okay, I know we have our guests coming on here in just a minute, but I think we have time to get through these. Uh, we talked about the other opinion, which is that recession fears are fading, so oil is up by three percent. Yeah. I, I love the like the like like is it or not? Is it is it bad? Is it not? Oil's rebound follows energy stocks come back on Wall Street last Friday. This is what drives me crazy. This first line, oil prices rose 2% on Monday as U.S. recession fears eased, and some traders saw crude's three-week slide on demand worries as overdone. I get That doesn't mean it's fear. It doesn't mean it's actually receding. That just means they're like, oil dropped too much. This is a serious question. 
and I'm not, I'm not trying to be facetious here. It might sound that way. How do they know that's why the price rose? Yeah, they don't. I mean, we, we talk about the area of fake news a lot. That's pure conjecture. Pure oh, yeah. conjecture. It could be that someone wanted to trade it and they wanted to, you know, or, or whatever. Um, it could be a lot of things. It's just funny that we, we, we take that news as actual gospel, not that the price rose, but just why the price rose. Um, I think that's kind of why you're, you're picking on there a little bit. It's like, Oh, well here, here, <laughs> here we're saying that, it, you know, the recession's over and these people buy into it. So. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the recession is over, but yeah, it just means that like, Oh, well maybe oil prices dropped a little too much, but that's the volatility today. When you've got, you know, a lot of liquidity and stuff so like you're going to have very exaggerated highs and lows, you know, that's just the way it is. Like, unless you want to make it harder to trade oil, like that's, I, I just think that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, and if you look at it right now, all that 77 Brent, 73 WTI, WTI. So still not great numbers for where it's supposed yeah. to be. So I guess, I guess we will see. Has the White House acknowledged that we have a recession going on? Or are we still debating that with them? I'm not quite sure. I don't think the White House acknowledges much of anything these days. <laughs> okay. I was wondering if this was going to be in the lineup. <laughs> and here it is. No more gas stoves. New York New York is first state to ban gas in new buildings. Okay. God, New York's freaking crazy. Who, I mean, part of a larger state plan to reach net zero energy emissions by 2050. So, okay, so so what are they planning to power their power plants with? Well, I bet what's going to happen is is you and your home can't have one, but the power plant will get some kind of extension of a permit and will allow it to continue to run. Because it's exactly. only because otherwise there will be no energy. Right. And and also coal, probably. But I think New York gets a lot of hydro from like somewhere, but they still do a lot of natural gas. So most new buildings but, under step seven stories will have to use electric heat pumps for controlling air temperatures and for hot water. Larger buildings will have to comply by 2029. Some businesses that require extreme heat are exempt. The law does not apply. Extreme heat. What is that? Extreme heat. Yeah. I don't know. Like um, if you're like blowing glass, I mean, like if you're like cremating bodies, I mean, what are we talking (laughs) about here? Yeah. You're going to, yeah, you're blowing glass. You're going to need some heat for sure. So I was thinking because there's like a glass cup, there's no like corn and glass in New York. The, so it's, it's by 2026. Does that mean that people will like, there'll be like a building boom between now and 2026 to get up their buildings done. And so they don't have to, Yeah. or, or I, there's, there's going to be a loophole with a permit or construction date, or there'll probably be, you know, lots across New York where like one shovel has broken some dirt. So they can say yeah. there's construction, but they have no real plans to. It's like, they, I think that once they realize like that you can't use a heat pump in like Buffalo, there'll just be no new buildings. Everything will be like retrofitting old buildings, right? 
Yeah, you. I mean, I mean, like Buffalo's like Canada. It's really cold. I've heard. I've heard that. <laughs> yeah. I saw pictures this winter of like eight foot of snow up there. It seemed. Oh uh, like. yeah. Like heat pumps don't work that well. I mean, look at the, like people in England who put them in. Like they can't even. They're like it doesn't work. They don't work that well. It's fact. I think they're killing, they're trying to kill like all the upstate, like little towns. So is this, I mean, it's interesting. Can you, uh, from a constitutional standpoint, can they appeal this to the Supreme Court or because it's a state law, the state hmm. can make the law? I guess they'd have like, why, why would it be against the constitution? Right. That's the right. question. Yeah. Hmm. I, I don't know. Yeah. Or you're somewhere can, can email us, but. Hmm. Beyond that, builders remain dubious. Like the plenty of builders remain dubious. Heat pumps tend to be more efficient and cheaper to run the natural gas. Or no, it doesn't necessarily. Oh God! Then the grid handle all that demand? No. Yeah, that's the next question. Is the it says the here the the New York Independent System Operator? That's the the they manage the electricity flow across the grid. Say that the state's energy cushion could narrow beginning in 2025 as some generators are deactivated and demand grows. Basically, New York's fucked. Excuse my language. He's like, they've got to improve and put in more alternative energy sources. I bet you're right. I bet they don't take off. They don't actually deactivate stuff. Mm. I bet that's what happens. Um, I mean, like, because they're not going to, you you can't build enough like wind in New York to like to, to accommodate for this. Huh? Well, yeah, I bet, I bet they don't. Um... There's a few elections between now and 2026, I suppose in New York. So they might also just, Vote more Republican, yeah. Modern Democrats in, and no, New York, New York? <laughs> maybe it's a, it's a big state, or, or they'll continue to hemorrhage people, and so they just won't have as much electricity demand. That's also true, right? That's also true. That's also true. I hadn't looked at New York's congressional, state congressional dis districts this year. New York State House. Um. How many do you think, how many Republicans do you think are in the New York State House? How many total are in the New York State House? <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying, I'm trying to see it. No. I don't know. I bet it's like a one third of them are Republicans. Let's see here. It is, if I can read. Yeah, there's 213 Democrats, 63 Republicans. Ooh. That's in the Senate, I guess. It's one. It's one hundred two to forty-eight. In wait, maybe that's so. Maybe sixty-three to forty. Hold on. Oh, it's forty-two to twenty-one. I guess in the Senate, and then one hundred two to forty-eight in the in their House. Hmm. If I'm reading this correct. So, anyways, our guest is here. Let's see if we can get him lined up and on the screen. I think we're there. How are we going? How's it going today, sir? I'm doing great, Ryan. How are you? Good. Hi, Dr. Good. Wall. 
Good to see you. Good to see you too. It's good to have you back. Maybe give us a quick overview of this report before we dig into it. Of course. And so our, our Dallas Fed first quarter survey, it was released in late March. Uh, the survey has, it's a quarterly survey, upstream only firms, 200 firms are registered. They're located or headquartered in the 11th district, which is Texas, Southern New Mexico, and Northern Louisiana. Um, although these firms do operate regionally, nationally, internationally. The data was collected March 15th to the 23rd. We had 147 firms respond 95 are exploration production firms, 52 are OFL services firms. If I was to recap in a minute, what was most important points? It, it, the data suggests that the expansion we've been seeing over the last two years in the upstream, upstream sector, it is essentially stalling. Um, we did continue to see cost increase. We did though, on the other hand, saw supply chain delays. They did ease a bit. Um, Employment growth continues just a little bit slower than before. Uh, executives reported a jump in uncertainty uh, and then their outlooks turned negative, which is a surprise because generally they're very uh, optimistic. Most executives are. It did turn negative. Um, Year-end price expectations, $80 for, for crude oil. Uh, and then we do collect uh, comments from executives. Generally they, or at least this time, they express a lot of caution. Um, and there's a variety of topics like cost inflation, labor and material shortages, access to capital, um, and the regulatory environment. Yeah, I want to talk uh, about the break-even price because I see you guys have that in there. So as of today's recording, WTI is sitting at 73. And it seems like 56 to 66, if I'm reading this correctly, more or less, depends on the size of the company, is where the break-even is for... Um, the Permian, maybe kind of unpack why that spreads there, what they were saying about that spread. Um, and then is that because of labor, just inflation, a multitude of things? Great question. And so the the range of the averages was 56 to 66. Obviously, there's a lot of variability by region. Um, and again, that's the average of the region. So like if you look at the Eagle for it, it was 56. In the Midland Basin, so Midland Basin, part of the Permian was 58, the Delaware was 61, but then Permian Other, which includes all the areas outside the Midland and Delaware, it was 66. So the average across the Permian was 62. Uh, I think the main takeaway we got from it was that when you look at these numbers, most firms can profit, profitably drill a new well at current prices. Um, obviously, though, I think if I go to last year, the difference was much larger. Um, that's also because the break-even last year that they reported was $56 per barrel. So we've moved up about 10% to $62 per barrel. The price of oil is lower than it was last first quarter. Um, and then I always like to highlight that when you look at the size of the firm, uh, large firms, which we define as crude production, 10,000 barrels a day or more, um, for the fourth quarter of 2022, they need $55 per barrel. The smaller firms, though, need 64. Uh, and I think that a lot of that just has to do with economies of scale, uh, potentially a smaller inventory. Um, and then within each of these regions, of course, there are different variables uh, that can impact the break-evens. That's, uh, that's really interesting. I um, was kind of curious about the um, oil price um, 
forecast because I always like to to see what they think oil prices are going to be and compare that to what they thought it was was going to be later. And um, so it says that their their average. So this is what what you expect the price of crude to be at the end of 2023. And it seems that the average response was eighty dollars in a barrel. At the same time, spot prices were $68 a barrel. So they definitely think that prices are going to go up. But I was curious as to this spread and if you're seeing maybe a wider spread or do we generally see kind of things clustered in the same way? So what I've noticed over the last five to six years that we've been collecting this data is that generally uh, executives, if they think the price is in a good range, they kind of think that year-end prices will be the same. Uh, if the prices fall, they think the price might end higher at the end of the year. And if the price has jumped up significantly, they think the price will come down. And so last year in the first and second quarter, they thought the price would actually come down. In the, I believe it's the third, fourth, and the first, they thought the price was going to go up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just because historically, they they just previously saw higher prices. I, I think that like from the discussions we have with contacts, they would all say that the price of oil is very hard to 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 forecast. But I think the value of this question is it kind of gives you an idea of what price are they baking in when they're thinking, at least for the near term, what's going to happen. Um, and so they do think that the price is going to be a little bit higher than during the survey period. Um, of course, when we're looking at the price though right now, it is that year-end forecast is higher than current prices. Yeah, I'm I'm curious also because um, maybe they think that um, OPEC is going to cut more, or there's going to be, or or you know, then there's no they they don't have to justify their uh, you know it's not like um, when you did math in in school and they were like explain your answer and <laughs> you don't have to you don't you don't ask them to explain it so we don't we don't get any reason why um, but it's still an interesting um, an interesting question. Um, so I, I thought that some of the special questions that you asked this time were very uh, interesting. I know we covered like what, um, you know, uh, break even. It was interesting. Um, you asked what um, WTI price does your firm need to cover operating expenses for existing wells? Uh, I thought that was a, a really interesting question. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit more about what the response to that uh, tells us. Definitely. And we, we've we've been asking the same question since 2016. I think we always kept it as like a, a level in which you could potentially see wells be shut in. They're not as relevant, obviously, in a higher price environment, except that if you do see this price going up, it could suggest that the operating costs are going up. And so the average across the sample was $37 per barrel. That's up from 34 last year. So it's about a 10% increase. So it's a, I think it suggests an increase in cost just to manage your existing wells. But obviously in, in our current you know, $73 environment, the 37 just means that they're obviously gonna be pumping and they can cover their operating costs without issue. Now there is some variability. Uh, I think the range of responses, I can't tell from the chart. I think it goes all the way up to 75 and the low end is somewhere around $5. Um, and so it could be that, as many of us know, there are some wells that produce thousands of barrels a day, and there's some that produce one or two barrels. And so there is, I think, a variability in these operating costs for existing wells. Um, the average across the regions was 29 to 45. Uh, 
And then, of course, we mentioned that all of respondents can cover operating expenses for existing wells at current prices. I think this question was very important in 2020 and 2016. Mm -hmm. Those are periods in which we saw prices go dip to 30 or below. Um, and this gave us an idea of you know, when you would see these shut-ins. And I think 2020, we definitely saw shut-ins. Uh, and 2016, I think we also saw shut-ins too. Hmm. That's interesting. Is there any sense of like, I know we spent a lot of time on this podcast and other times talking about ducks. Um, any sense of like whether, uh, does this have any impact on 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 that? I, I think that one way you could think about ducks is it has to be the price to complete a duck has to be between the operating expenses and the new well that the, the, the price needed to drill a new well, because they already know the drilling portion is sunk. And so they just need to complete the well. Uh, the only thing is that, of course, the completion cost, I think, makes up generally about two thirds of the total well cost. Wow. Uh, and so I, I don't know if you would just stick it in between the two numbers. You might stick it a little bit higher. Um, and so I, I, that's kind of the way I would think about, like, at what point, if you have a bunch of ducks, uh, or extra amount of ducks, uh, you would want to to go in and complete it. From talking with context, so I think most of these companies are running very lean, and and in 2020 and early 2021, that's when they really eliminated a lot of their ducks. So it would have to be a company which uh, just has a lot of ducks that's just been around, that's it's just been in their portfolio for a long time. I think. Hmm. And what, uh, go ahead. More on this, yeah, natural gas prices are really low. I think there was an expectation that they'd be higher, at least from some analysts going into this year. Um, in the Permian, especially where you have a maybe a 70-30 mix or 80-20 mix, or whatever, you know, high gas prices can really help make some of those wells more profitable, especially if you're at 71, 72. I saw one person noted that in the special uh in the special comments or whatever it's called. Um, do you get a sense that that's a larger concern across the industry that you got $70 oil and you got $2 gas? From from what we can hear and and from reading through the contacts or talking with our contacts outside the surveys, generally, especially for the oil and gas companies, the the natural gas and the natural gas liquids are essentially like an additional uplift. I think you you get that additional revenue. Uh, but since we've been through a long period, 2010 to 2020, where we had low natural gas prices, two to four, I think the higher prices are always welcome for firms' profitability. Uh, of course, now natural gas has moved down to two. So this really impacts those natural gas producers that are focused on natural gas wells. Most of these regions like the Permian, the Eagle Ford, uh, they tend to be more oil focused. Um, I think that if it was more like the Haynesville and the Marcellus, or if you're drilling in the gassier parts of the Permian, that's where those natural gas prices will be a bigger deal in terms of break-evens. That's interesting, especially because there's a comment like um, I think right at the the end from a uh, oil and gas support services for firm that says that um, natural gas, the gas directed activity, especially in the Haynesville, is being negatively impacted by takeaway limitations and significant declines in Henry Hub natural gas prices since third quarter 2022, which basically drives with with what you're saying. Um, they think that credit though is is an issue that they can't get. Get credit, um, get uh, get get any credit, which is um, also an issue because of the banking and and financial system uh, 
um, issues. I've never seen so many comments actually mention kind of larger banking issues. It's always been like, you know, in general, we're having a hard time getting, you know, getting funding or, or you know, Wall Street's not interested. Now they're mentioning like specific, you know, bank failures and things like that. I mean, maybe that was a big, I think maybe that was in the news right at the time that the data was being collected. But um, it's interesting to see how they see that as impacting their industry, even though, you know, it wasn't necessarily part of it. Um, so, so I thought that was, that was really interesting. Um, is there a concern that, um, in terms of power consumption, uh, in, in the area, uh, it seemed like some people were actually mentioning that there's an elect, that there are electricity concerns in, in the area of West Texas. And I think that has to do a lot with, and we've seen this theme come up again and again in the survey in terms of the comments, the the push to uh, part of the transition, of course, reducing emissions uh, by moving to electric power, um, it reduces those emissions related to, let's say, uh, if you were fracking a well, you could use uh, maybe an electric turbine. Um, essentially, it's just a way of, I think it, I think they're really talking more about reducing emissions, um, and electricity would be that that specific way. Mm. I think also it requires that last mile transmission, um, which can be costly. Uh, but they, but they do mention it. Uh, it. It's come up in our comments many times. I think that obviously there are. I think last year, the number of wells completed in the Permian were near or. A, an all-time high. So as mm. more and more wells are completed, there's a need for more and more electricity. Uh, it's it's further out there where less people live. And so it's definitely uh, something that gets mentioned, I think almost mm. every quarter in the survey comments. Uh, a lot of anger directed at the Bureau of Land Management. There, there, there definitely is. Um, did I, I did think... something particular in the region happen that kind of brought this out? I was kind of wondering if there's a particular incident? I, I don't think so. I, I think um, the, the, the the theme around permits or permitting has come up many times in energy. I think it, it's not just like oil and gas. It also comes up in renewables. Um, and I'd have to actually look into, uh, I know that the BLMM has been talking about like specific rules for permitting. Um, I'd have to though look into more if there's something specific that's come up um, that may have impacted their ability to permit. But I, I, I've mm. heard from not just oil and gas, but even from renewables, just the challenges around permitting. Um, and it may be that it's taking longer to get a permit. And so that's why the BLM came up more. I, I think mm. it's come up in the past, but I did see it just like you mentioned uh, more times this time. Yeah, okay. And so... Was there anything that, I mean, you, you're putting these out, putting these together. Was there anything that stood out to you that you didn't expect or an answer or uh, the data trended somewhere? Or does it kind of follow the pattern that you've been seeing, uh, generally speaking, over these past handful of years? I know one thing that was surprising was we saw costs continue to rise, but then we also saw uh, supply chain issues ease. Um, and so supply chain issues have been getting worse and worse in the oil field. In the first quarter, we saw it ease. 
And there's, of course, some theories around it. It could just be that because activity was closer to flat in terms of growth, this provided that opportunity for the supply chain to catch up. A contact, though, mentioned that, no, it's just that all this equipment was ordered and it just finally got here. Uh, it takes a lead time. And then, you know, when they build it, it's delivered. And so it was a little bit hard to say what was driving the easing of the supply chain issues. Uh, we did ask, though, last summer how long companies thought their supply chain issues would take to kind of, you know, get fixed. And, and most of them, I think it was like two thirds, if I remember correctly, was thinking that it would take pretty much 12 months. But there were some that felt a little bit better that maybe it could get done in six, six to nine months. So <laughs> again, though, would you define this as resolved? I don't know. It could be that, just like they mentioned, more than 12 months to get it back to resolve may mean normal. And that might take those full 12 months. But I'm looking at the results and they had some that said seven to nine and 10 to 12, but about two thirds said more than 12 months. So I don't know if this is really a res resolving of it. It may just be that uh, it's getting better. Other than that though, I think that, I, you know, we, we kind of can look at the rig count and go, you know, mm -hmm. that there's a sign that the activity is kind of, kind of a little bit more flattening. We'll see what this quarter pans out with. And then employment, we all hear about labor shortages issues. So, you know, it's expected to see an increase in, in employment. Um, I think we we thought that the costs were going, we already knew costs were going up. So to see the break-evens go up about 10%, I don't think it's too surprising. Um, it is quite a big jump. Um, and so there wasn't anything, I guess, too like exceptional, like you didn't expect. I think it is important to look at the fact that the outlooks were negative and that the uncertainty jumped. Um, I think that that's just a sign that there may be a little bit of caution or more caution among executives. Um, and some part of it could just be that the price of oil fell. So the price of oil does impact outlooks. It does impact uh, your uncertainty. Uh, but it's just noteworthy, I think, to look at. Okay. And one last question, because we were talking about this earlier about predicting the price and how hard it is. Do you, I know you guys take the forecast. Do you ever go back and do the historical data of how accurate? Because these are the people who actually live and die on this. And everyone's got an opinion like me and Dr. Wald here. But um, but these people, you know, it, it's obviously a lot closer to home. Do you go back and track how close they are to their forecasting predictions? Not individually, but as a collective? We have. And, and and I think the main takeaway you'll find, and this one's a little bit harder because the way it works is it's year end. So it's like sure. 12 months out, nine months out, six months out, three months out. The Kansas City Fed one's a little bit easier than it just says six months and 12 months and two years and five years. You'll find that the error in the near term is, let's say, 20%. As you go further and further out, it'd be up to 50%. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that... Uh, the price of oil is hard to predict. I think we all know that. We all know that if you just take the futures curve, you're also likely to be incorrect about 50% of the time and then correct 50% of the time. Uh, and, and you could, the challenge is that like uh, the price of oil can move so quickly. Uh, like if we just talked like a, a month ago, it was like 80 and then now it's like 73. And then a couple of days ago it was back down to 68. Mm -hmm. uh, one of our, we had an energy conference in Houston and a speaker just mentioned when you give a price forecast, if you give the date, then you're likely to get it wrong. 
Um, <laughs> but if you, and you can think about it, like if you just provide the price, then, you know, when you get there, you say, I got it right. But, but it's a good question. The error, let's just say near-term error, 20%. As you go further and further out, let's call it like five years up to 50%. If you think about it, like if you're in 2011 to 2014 and when the price was 120, you would probably just say, ah, I think five years now will be 120. <laughs> and it fell to 50, right? And then it's right. at 50, you're like, it's going to be 50 for now. And five years later, it goes up to 100. And then you just, again, it's a 50% error over five years. I think companies know that uh, they're a price taker, right? There are, in the US, there are thousands of producers. Uh, and then globally, there are, you know, many countries that produce. So in many ways, they're just a price taker. Manage your exposure, manage your, your, your operations. Um, I think there's some comments that always say just the number one thing that always stays is just don't overspend um, because it is very hard to predict the price of oil. Don't okay. overspend. Don't overspend. Good lesson for everyone. We're going to link that to- could be for, go That could be many other things outside of just <laughs> work too, right? Yeah. So it's a good, it's a good lesson for everyone. Uh, we're going to link to the report in the show notes. Anything else you guys have coming out in the near future? No, I mean, our, our next report will come out on, uh, let me get the date. Uh, I think it's the 20, 22nd or the 23rd of June. Uh, but let me get it just in case. It is the 22nd of June. It's a Thursday. Uh, and of course, it'll come out quarterly. We will have an energy conference this year in Oklahoma City. Uh, the details will be on our website. Um, uh, and, and we have some other publications like our energy indicators, energy slideshow. Um, and then, of course, we also write about energy in our Dallas Fed economics. Okay. We will link to y'all's website in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, glad to be here um, and uh, look, forward to, look forward to talking to you both in the future. Absolutely. Yes. Okay, Dr. Wald, where will you be this week? Let's see. This week, I'll be on investing.com. And then I'm also going to be on a podcast later this week called the International Risk Podcast, mm. where I think we will be talking about how or if OPEC members will evolve to the sh in the shift to green energy and what kind of risks this produces for the international community. So mm. it should be interesting. Okay. I will be on Inside the War Room. Today, we've got one coming out on uh, the virtual you, how to build a virtual twin, which is above my pay grade, one on immigra immigration, one on Rod Serling from the Twilight Zone. Had no idea he was a paratrooper in World War II. So anyways, Ooh. all kinds of cool stuff there. With that, we will be back next week. See you later.